talking about Ruth. We're about to talk about Esther. We've taken, we're going to take five weeks to talk about extraordinary women of the Old Testament, and there are many. We're only going to talk about two, and we've already talked about Ruth. This week, we're going to move into Esther. Now, both of these women, as you recall from a few weeks ago, both of these stories of Ruth and Esther are both stories of redemption and salvation. Both have these incredible plot twists that make you wonder who's being redeemed and by whom. Both of them are interesting because they either have little or absolutely no mention of God, and yet God's presence uh, might not only be assumed, and at least in Ruth, it is incredibly palpable, less so in Esther, but it is assumed, and we can look for God's presence through the story. Both women break with the convention of their day. Both of them break the rules, and they do what is best or what seems right, and in so doing, they fulfill God's purposes. It, it says that both of these are like simple little stories. In the past, they haven't really been, sometimes they're not given really the credit due them because it says, oh, well, Ruth is this sweet story that explains David's genealogy and how he came to power. And Esther is a sweet story about how the Jewish festival of Purim came to be. And both of those are true. But um, both of them carry a message that it's very, that's very vital to our understanding of hope and salvation, to, our, to understanding our own hope for salvation. Uh, Ruth and Esther are women who, in their stories, become primary carriers of God's saving grace. And so we have a lot to learn from their stories. So let's jump in to Esther. Okay, the Hebrew book of Esther in our Old Testament is an exciting, it's fast-paced story. It really reads like a novel. If Ruth read like an extended parable, Esther reads like a novel. It has a young and beautiful heroine. It has a wicked villain that you're going to meet today, a wise father figure, an inept, bumbling, baboon, laughable ruler, in the end, God triumphs over evil, and there's a happy ending for some people anyway, not for others, but there is a happy ending. And so not surprisingly, because this read so well, Esther was so popular that it was included in the Jewish canon in spite of certain objections, mainly because it failed to mention God. That's a big, that's a big thing when it's a book about the, of the Bible, right? And you're trying to learn about God, that God's not mentioned. Uh, not even once. In Esther, do we hear God's name mentioned? And Martin Luther King decried it. He decried James, too, and we found lots of good in James, right? Uh, he decried the book, saying, I am so hostile to this book that I wish it did not exist, for it Judaizes too much and has too much heathen naughtiness. <laughs> well, since it's a story about the Jews' salvation, it probably does Judaize a bit, and it does have some heathen naughtiness in it. Where Ruth's naughtiness was sort of read between the lines, this is not so much so. It's pretty, it's pretty overt. So, um, so the book of Esther has this really lighthearted surface. So as you read, you can laugh about things even though they're pretty serious topics. Um, and, but Esther also, um, beneath this light surface, explores some very dark themes racial hatred, 
genocide, evil, the evil of pride and vanity, and the misuse of power. And who gets the power, and how do you use it, and how, how are you going to use your power for the good or for the evil? Like the book of Ruth, Esther provides these multiple layers or kaleidoscope types of meaning that make it a very worthwhile study for today. So it's, there's going to be a lot of ap life application in the midst of that. It is also one of the five scrolls, like Ruth, that is read each year at a Jewish festival. Esther is read in the synagogue each year during Purim, and we'll learn more about Purim later and what that's all about. So the setting. Uh, it's in the Jewish diaspora of the Persian Empire. Remember when the Babylonians defeated Israel, they send everyone out of Israel, out of Jerusalem, and they are scattered. And now this is part of the Persian Empire, and so we're living away from Jerusalem. It's suggested that it's written between the 5th and 3rd century B.C. The, uh, Babylon conquered Israel in, I think, 586 B.C. And so um, they think it's written between the 5th and 3rd century B.C., but probably closer to the 3rd. It's a court legend like that of uh, the story of Daniel or the story of Joseph. Remember, they too, Daniel is living in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar, and he, because of his faithfulness, comes to power. Joseph has been sold into slavery into Egypt, and he ingratiates himself to Pharaoh and becomes a leader in Pharaoh's court. So now we have a woman role model who comes to power in a Persian court. Esther is very unique in that unlike other books in the Hebrew Bible, it exists in three <coughs> different versions, all having a little bit different variety in the way they read. The one that we have, the Hebrew um, in our Old Testament. In the Hebrew, it's called the Masoretic Text. Uh, then the Septuagint, which is the Greek um, translation of, that of the Hebrew text, which was written about 2nd century B.C., but it's got some additions to it. It reads a little differently than the one in our Bible. And then there's an al the Alpha Text, which is also a Greek translation that was written closer to the time of the Masoretic Text, and it is very different. It adds more than 50 references to God. It's trying to kind of smooth out some of the rough edges of the original. So we have three different versions, and we're going to concentrate on the, the Hebrew text today. Let's start with chapter 1. This happened in the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. By the way, we're going to go through a lot, and when you see dot, 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 that means I've left out a chunk of scripture. We're going to try to flash through. So, in the time of King Ahasuerus, has lots of provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, he gave a banquet for all his officials and ministers. He displayed the great wealth of his kingdom and the pomp of his majesty for many days, 180 days in all. Add that up. It's a six-month party. We've had a six-month party. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people in the citadel of Susa, I guess the people who were helping make all this happen, a banquet lasting for seven days in the court of the king's palace. So everybody who lived in Susa got to have a little party themselves. 
Drinks were served in golden goblets, and the royal wine was lavished in accordance to the bounty of the king. Drinking was without restraint. This is very Persian. It's lots of drinking going on. It's like a frat party. Furthermore, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the palace of King Ahasuerus. So Vashti, the queen, has her own banquet. Okay, Ahasuerus uh, is not the name of a known Persian king. Uh, the author assumes that the audience is going to know, though, which king he's talking about. And Ahasuerus' name in Hebrew is very similar to some others. Josephus, the historian, and the Septuagint both understand him to be Artaxerxes, who ruled uh, 465 to 424 B.C., and the Alpha text identifies him as Xerxes, who ruled just previous to that. Xerxes' kingdom extended to most of the known world, which would agree with verse 1, that it was from India to Ethiopia. Um, so, well, I don't get a pointer. Oh, here we go. It's too slow. India's over here. All of this region and Ethiopia is down here. So he had a big kingdom. Persian Empire was huge. And so that sort of lines up. Now, the citadel of Susa, a citadel is a fortified city with got lots of walls. It's, it's big. It's for protection. And um, Darius I, who was the, was the Persian king just before Xerxes, made Susa the capital of the Persian Empire during his reign. And we see this in Daniel's story. In Daniel 6, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. So this is very much in line with what verse 1 saying, stationed throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents, including Daniel. So another court story there. Now banquets are going to play a very important role in Esther. The banquet signifies something uh, important is about to happen or it has happened. So we've just already had one banquet. And they are also not your typical Rotary Club or football player kind of affair. Uh, in these banquets, and Esther generally in indicates, as you've already seen, lots of wine is flowing. And of course, when that happens, as my husband say, what could possibly go wrong? Things get out of control. And so, let's continue. On the seventh day of the banquet, when the king was merry with wine, and why wouldn't he be? He commanded the seven eunuchs who attended him to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing the royal crown in order to show her beauty, for she was fair to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. I wonder why. Can't figure that one out. At this, the king was enraged. Then the king consulted the sages who knew the laws. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus conveyed by the eunuchs. Then Memucan said, <clears throat> not only has Queen Vashti done wrong to the king, actually, she's also done wrong to all the officials and all the peoples in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, for this deed of the queen will be made known to all the women. Oh my goodness, what would happen then? This very day, the noble ladies of Persia who've heard of the queen's behavior will rebel against the king's officials, and there will be no end of contempt and wrath. Well, if it pleases the king, 
let a royal order go out from him so that it may not be altered. We're not going to make a law and we're not going to change it. That Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Very tongue-in-cheek. This advice pleased the king and the officials. I bet it did. <laughs> it pleased the king and the officials. And he sent letters to all the royal provinces declaring that every man should be master in his own house. Now that's a rule I want to see enforced. <laughs> okay. So there is absolutely no reason given for Vashti's refusal. We can only speculate. I mean, why don't you show up with, in a room full of drunk men? Though that sounds like a fun thing. Um, the king, uh, and also some of the uh, rabbinic legend states that the king uh, commanded her to come wearing only her crown, and others, other writings say that the, uh, it was forbidden for women to appear before a, a big body of men, but we don't see any evidence of that anywhere. So we can only, again, we can only speculate. But anyway, the king has been publicly humiliated, and he is mad and drunk. Uh, and, but rather than confront Vashti directly, as we would expect a husband to do to a wife or a king to a queen, instead he turns to his advisors in the law, who really don't quote the law. It's interesting, isn't it? They don't quote any law. Instead, they ask to create a law. And um, this, this response, of course, that they have is completely out of proportion to the crime, right? Which makes this so laughable. And they've turned this matter of personal disobedience into a state affair, you know, that affects all husbands and wives and the stability of the kingdom is at stake because the queen said, don't think I'm coming to that party. So it's really silly stuff. And Vashti, ironically, is forbidden to do what she refused to do, and that is come before the king. And so the decree master of the house also is unenforceable and laughable. There's this decree, and we move on. So when the anger of King Hazarus had abated, my guess is when he sobered up, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king in all the provinces of his kingdom. Let their cosmetic treatments be given them, and let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. He remembered Vashti. Did he remember her with love? Um, the Septuagint reads, remember, there's a whole different version out there, he remembered Vashti no longer, meaning that he was ready to find a new wife. Um, he, did he remember Vashti with regret because the king was really kind of fond of her and he kind of did this silly thing? Well, that's what Josephus implies, that, that he, he remembered her with regret. And we think that perhaps that is what is meant here because of the response of his servants. Well, let's just take, let's take Vashti off your mind by bringing in a whole bunch of other girls. So um, 
they said, let's round up some virgins and bring them here to you. Now, the word for virgin is betulot. It's uh, young women of marrying age. It's not really what we think of as virgin, but it it might have that same connotation. Anyway, they're going to round up lots of young girls of marrying age. Um, There are other criteria. Not only did they be young, uh, they had to be beautiful, of course, because it is the king. And beauty treatments are going to be provided. Uh, We're going to have a big spa day, or as we find out later, more than that. But what we have in there is a break. So we stop this story about let's round up some cute girls for you, and we have a break. And in the story, we're going to introduce two new characters. Now, there was a Jew in the citadel of Susa named Mordecai, son of Kish. There's a big genealogy here, so he's a descendant of Kish. Son of Kish, carried away from Jerusalem among the captives of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So Kish went to Babylon. Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. The girl was fair and beautiful, Uh uh-oh. You know what's going to happen next. And Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. Mordecai says, is in the citadel, which implies that he is a court official. He's also a descendant of Kish, who in the uh, Old Testament tells us Kish is the father of King Saul. So Mordecai is related to King Saul. We've got to keep that in the back of our minds as we move on. He's the first king of Israel. And we see this in Samuel. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a Benjaminite, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. So Mordecai is a Jew of the diaspora. He's descended from those who have been deported to Babylon. And a century later, it appears like they've assimilated. They're living in the court. They're all getting along well. And then it says Esther has both. She has two names, Hadassah, which means myrtle. And she has um, a Persian name, Esther, which means star. And in Hebrew, the letters that make up Esther mean I will hide. So we know something's going to be hidden here. It's not uncommon. um, It wasn't uncommon in the Persian Empire for the Jewish women to take on Persian names. uh, So they would have two names, just as a lot of Asian women in our culture will have their Asian name, and then they'll be called Nancy. Or, you know, so they have two names as well. So sort of the same thing. And we find out that Esther is an orphan. She's raised as a daughter by Mordecai, and her status as an orphan is going to mirror the Jewish people's status as exiles. Just like in Ruth, we were to identify Naomi as Israel. Here we are identifying her orphan status as the exiles. Um, They're marginalized and powerless, and she is... They are here too, which is our first indication that Esther's going to be a role model, just like Ruth was, remember? So, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai. He was a, a eunuch who had charge of the women, the women's quarters. So, the girl pleased Haggai and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetic treatments and her portion of food and advanced her and her maids to the best place in the harem. So she's doing well. Esther did not reveal her people. She didn't let it known that she's Jewish. For Mordecai charged her not to tell. See, she's hidden something. That's her name. Every day, Mordecai would walk around the court of the harem to learn how Esther fared. 
Esther was taken into the palace. So the author doesn't seem upset and offers no hint of protest from Esther or Mordecai. Um, the laws proclaimed, they obey. Doesn't seem like this is a big deal. She, he just goes. And Esther wins the favor of Haggai. That's her first action is to win the favor of this, this person who is in charge of all the women. She doesn't find favor. Remember like Ruth did, may I find favor with you. But she actively earns it. So she's working. And it's to her positive credit and result. So Haggai treats her well offers her treatments and her portion of the food early on. Obviously, it's court food, so we're not thinking it's kosher. And so she really has negotiated wisely her first step toward political power in the palace here. Contrast that with Daniel 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with royal rations of food and wine, and he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now, we find in other readings of Esther, she's asking the same thing, but not this one. So she's hiding that fact, and it seems okay with this author. So she's not an observant Jew, and there's no hint of judgment by the author on this. She hides her Jewish identity at Mordecai's request. She always obeys Mordecai, and Mordecai makes sure he's keeping up with her, checking in on her. The, tur the turn came for each girl to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months 12 months under their cosmetic treatment. They've had a 12-month spa day. When the girl went in to the king, meaning when each girl was presented to the king, in the evening she went in, in the morning she came back to the second harem. Read between the lines. She did not return unless the king delighted in her and summoned her by name. When Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. Of all the virgins, she won his favor and devotion, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet to all his officials and ministers. Esther's banquet. So this something big has happened. We've had something else happen. We have a new queen. In the evening, one, one, in the evening they went in, and in the morning they came out. After 12 months of beauty treatments, each girl has one night with the king. And then they go to the second harem. Now the Hebrew word for this, if I, can't, if I can say it without stumbling over it, is palagashim. <laughs> that's it, palagashim is palagashim, which translated is concubines. So they go from one, uh, one kind of dormitory of women to being in the dormitory with the concubines. So that tells you a little bit there. Even though these women are sequestered, though, they, do, they could wield power. For what we find out, um, uh, especially if you were a queen or the mother of an heir, uh, Xerxes was actually killed in a harem coup. So these women could could have some power behind them. So once again, Esther wins favor, and this time it's the king's love and devotion, and he sets that crown on her head that Vashti refuses to wear in his presence. And so there's a banquet. And I think this whole past part of the story, it, I mean, it can be very disturbing and troubling. Um, 
especially to modern readers and women as it should be. Hundreds of girls are taken from their families for one year, for the whim of one man, for one night, and what's worse is that neither the author nor the character show any moral concern. Um, instead, the heroine is applauded for her success in winning. And uh, however, we're just going to go back and, and be in this story as, as the early third century folks would be. So we shouldn't really judge or dismiss the book of Esther as Martin Luther would want to do based on our modern Western moral standards. Even, uh, although, you know, it's, we're correct in deploring its treatment of women, both here and in other biblical narratives, Esther's actions need to be judged within her culture and these cultural parameters and in her own story. And in her story, she's acting very wisely. Uh, she's protecting herself, her kinsman Mordecai, we're going to see later, and ultimately her entire race and people. And so let's see what happens here. Um, her story, even though we might disagree with some of this going on, is going to ha have plenty to teach us about the moral use of power and how those in power can wreak havoc, as they already have, on the lives of the powerless. When the virgins were being gathered, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her kindred, as Mordecai had charged her. She's still hiding who she is. For, Mordecai, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. While Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The plot thickens. But the matter came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. So she tells him there's a plot, and this man has uncovered it. So she's trying to elevate Mordecai's status. There's an investigation, and both men are hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the Book of Annals. So the King's Gate refers not only to uh, an entry point in the city, but actually to the whole royal court in its entirety. So if we weren't sure before, we are now that Mordecai is a royal courtier, and the Septuagint says he is serving in the king's court. So that's what we thought, and that tends to be true. So up to this point, um, Esther is very obedient to Mordecai, just like when she was a little girl. She really, the story has told us, but I left out parts where she obeys Haggai. She obeys Mordecai. She's, she's obedient. She's compliant. She does what she's told. That's going to change, but not today. She follows good advice, and she continues to hide her Jewish identity. Um, and we've already said that it, while she's in the palace, um, it would have been impossible to hide her identity had she been eating kosher. So she's doing that. As queen, then she moves from this completely powerless situation to a relatively more powerful one, but right now not quite, not huge. Uh, she's trying to use her position to enhance Mordecai's status in exposing the king's plot, the, the assassination plot. So we've gone through chapters 1 and 2, and guess what? They're just a, they're just a prelude to what is to come. Uh, one queen has been removed. Uh, an impetuous king is introduced. A new queen is crowned. And a king is an indebted to his Jewish courtier. And so we have all the major players in place. The setting is introduced. The main narrative now and the excitement begins. We're going to do a brushstroke through chapter 3 and get us ready for next week. 
After these things, there's a lot has already happened. See how fast-paced it is? King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants bowed down. And they did obeisance to Haman, for the king had so commanded. Anytime there's a king command, you know there's, there's trouble coming. But Mordecai did not bow down or do obeisance. Then the king's servants at the king's gate said to Mordecai, you're not very smart. They said, why do you disobey the king's command? And so when he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would avail. So he said, they're going to say, see who comes out on top of this. Is Haman going to win or is Mordecai going to win? Let's pit them together and see what happens. For he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down to him, he was infuriated, but thought it beneath him to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So having been told who Mordecai's people were, the Jews, Haman plotted to destroy all the Jews. We're going a little overboard again. All the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Does this sound like? Sounds like Vashti only times 10. So the king, it appears, has a new favorite. Um, Haman is promoted into the top place of management at the palace. And ironically, he's rewarded for doing apparently nothing that we know of, while Mordecai has saved his life, but Mordecai hasn't been rewarded for anything. Haman is an Agagite, and his the genealogy is really threatening where the Jews were concerned because Agag was the king of the Amalekites, which was, were mortal enemies of the Jews, much like, remember last time in Ruth when we said, every time we said Moabite, what would you hear in the background? Yeah, um, same thing with Agagite. They were, they, were, they were enemies. And we see this in Exodus and Joshua. The Lord says, I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar. And at the end, he says, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation, including Mordecai's. So Mordecai, remember, is a descendant of Saul. And Saul has this battle with Agag that cost him his kingship. So what we have symbolically here is Agag against Saul in a new generation. And so this means nothing good is going to come to the Jews from Haman's rise to power. So Mordecai refuses to bow. He disobeys the king's command, just like Vashti, because he's Jewish. Hmm. I mean, he would have had to bow down to the king in order to be a courtier, so that really doesn't make sense. Uh, there's no, no Jewish law against bowing down to a superior. It seems that bowing to Haman in particular, disturbs Mordecai. Maybe it's because of who he is, his background. Uh, other versions of Esther say that Haman demanded divine obeisance and that he wore an idol pinned to his shirt so that that would mean if he bowed down to him, he'd be idolatrous. But again, that's not in this story. Um, so that's not stated here. Mordecai, really it appears for the first time, has acted unwisely. Um, and he's put himself... Uh, in danger, his people in danger, and we think our heroine is probably going to have to step up and do something about that. This tells us that Haman is infuriated, and when somebody, the last time somebody was mad, who was it? The king. 
and it brought about Vashti's banishment. So things don't bode well, it appears, for Mordecai and his people because he has made a representative of the king angry. In the first month, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast a purr, which means lot. Like, we're going to roll the dice for the day and for the month. And the lot fell on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered among the peoples of your kingdom. Their laws are different from every other people, and they don't keep the king's laws so that it is not appropriate for them, for the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, oh, I hate this line because we know what's going to happen. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued for their destruction. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. Basically, this is, I'm going to write you a check for $10,000 if you kind of let me do what I want to. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, do with them as it seems good to you. They cast purr. They cast, they're rolling the dice to see the day and the month that Haman is going to execute. What day is going to be best to, like, execute all the, all the Jews? All the Jews. So he's not content, just as earlier um, the king's advisors weren't content with just personal revenge. He, however, is motivated by past racial hostility. And so they cast Pur, which is where we get the, the name Purim for the festival of Purim. So this is where this comes from. They don't keep the king's laws, he says, and that's a lie because um, the Jews, while they kept their own commands, like their food laws, they also kept the laws of the countries in which they lived. And this is evidenced by Esther and Mordecai. Whenever they're told to do something by the law, they do it. Um, and so it's weird because the king doesn't even ask which people are to be destroyed and what their crimes were. Instead, he just hands his signet ring, which is really a symbol of his royal authority, and basically says, Haman, you can just do whatever you want to do. And we found this in Pharaoh giving his ring to Joseph in Genesis. But the difference is that Genesis reports through its story how Joseph earns the respect of Pharaoh in his signet ring. We don't see Haman earning any respect. We don't see anything. He's just called the enemy of the Jews here. So, it's understood that the king accepts Haman's money without asking about the identity of the people or the proof of their crimes. And the king, however, doesn't appear to be an anti-Semite like Haman, but he is thoughtless, maybe greedy, he's lazy, and this is just a posture that is just as dangerous to the Jews as Haman's evil plot. It's just as dangerous today if we sit by and we don't ask questions and we don't, don't get upset. We just go, eh, it'll work out. Something will work out. It's, it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing here in Esther. On the 13th day of the first month, an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, all these provinces, and to the governors over all the provinces, it was written in the name of the king, Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's ring. Letters were sent giving orders to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. In case you didn't wonder, here it is three times. Destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews in one day. 
the thirteenth day of the twelfth month and to plunder their goods. Couriers were sent quickly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So the Jews have about a year. They're in the first month, the twelfth month. They have a year before being destroyed and killed and annihilated in one day and having their goods plundered. And so this foreshadows some events that were in Genesis, sort of a, a paradigm shift of the salvific nature of the Exodus. Where we see in Exodus, the Egyptians urged the people to hasten their departure from the land. This was after the plagues, for they said, we shall all be dead. And the Israelites had done as Moses told them. They had asked the Egyptians for jewelry, silver, gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked, and so they plundered the Egyptians. So this kind of says to the hearer, maybe there's going to be a flip-flop here. Maybe this is a sign of hope that Esther and Mordecai's people will be delivered from this decree and that they'll be the ones that will get the plunder. So yet again, we have this personal slight that's been painted as a threat to the stability of the entire kingdom, and it's turned into an empire-wide crisis, and Susa is thrown into confusion, it says. Maybe they don't understand, like we don't. Maybe confusion, maybe they're like bewildered. Why? This is stupid. Why is this happening? And maybe, are they maybe reluctant to carry out the decree? There's been no indication that, they, that the Jews and Gentiles didn't get along peacefully until now. And so maybe, just maybe, is there hope for the Jews? So while the confusion reigns, Haman and the king are drinking, of course, as they always do. And um, in response to the king, there's Haman feels triumphant. The king is indifferent. The town is bewildered. And all three of these kind of reactions can lead to destruction, which we need to pay attention to. Action is called for. Action to save. But where will that salvation come from? We'll find out next week. <laughs> find out next week.